right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, the last time we were here in chapter 13, we were dealing with the commemoration or the sanctification of the firstborn of Israel. That is, God had commanded the children of Israel with respect to what he did to the Egyptians in the killing of the firstborn of both man and beast. God commemorated this event with Israel, giving him, giving him the firstborn, that is their male firstborn, Israel's male firstborn, and the by the sanctification, or should I say the offering of their firstborn of the animals. So therefore, there's the firstborn of the male children and the firstborn of the animals that are given to commemorate the great event of what God did to the Egyptians in the death of the firstborn. All of this is in relationship to God's deliverance of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Again, it's kind of like not to say a double commemoration, but it all speaks to God's great deliverance of Israel from the land of Egypt. For it was on the day that is Abib 15th, which is the day of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, remember guys, last for seven days, but it begins on the 15th. It was literally on the 15th of Abib. Sometimes you'll hear me say Nisan, whether Abib or Nisan is the same Jewish month, the first month. And it was on this very day that God brought them. They began to march out of Egypt and they walk into the into the time of their first days of freedom. OK, now. So basically in chapter 13, that was the gist of it, the commemoration of the firstborn. And this was to be done by way in which the Jews chose to do in a vehicle of remembrance, God told them to bind it upon their hand, to bind it upon their, uh, between their eyes, on their forehead. The Jews chose to commemorate that and the scriptures may have possibly been stating to bind those phylacteries or tefillim, those devices. We talked about all of that in chapter 13, upon the little black boxes on their foreheads to the which they had four passage of scriptures in. And this was done as a memory device for the children of Israel. And so that they could teach successive generations of what God had done for them and bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And basically the chapter ended with the sense of God's provision and care for them and that God would be in the cloud leading the children of Israel. Now that will be, that will be, I wouldn't say more important, but we'll begin to see even more of the importance of this cloud, the Shekinah, not only simply the Shekinah glory, but the presence of the angel of God in that cloud. But God began with this cloud to lead the children of Israel. And so the last time we saw them, I think they were heading in some sort of a southeasterly direction, I believe it was. But we're going to see as we move into chapter 14, God himself is going to direct the change of pattern for the movement of the children of Israel. So without any further ado, so we won't get into that. Let's get into chapter 14. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi 
between Migdal and the sea, you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Okay, so we began chapter 14 with the commandment of God. Now, I'm not going to try to get into all of the geographical locations of these particular places. They have a sense of importance, but it's not that importance for you to understand what God is saying to Moses and in the scriptures. Okay, so I'm not going to hone in on all those geographical locations. But the point to remember is in verse number two, what God is directing Moses to do is to change directions. OK, with the directions that they were heading in pre uh, for, uh, at the present time. That's the that's the right idea at the present direction that they were heading in out of Sukkoth from the city of Ramesses. They were heading in this. I think it was a southeasterly direction. Now God tells them to change direction and the direction here is seems to be a northeasterly direction. And so now they are they are seen to be going in one direction and all of a sudden change. Now, you got to remember in chapter 13, the last thing we talked about is the manner in which God led them as they were continuing their journey out of Egypt. So, and God had said that he led them by way of the Philistines because he did not want the children of Israel to go to travel on commonly travel roads by the Egyptians because the Egyptians would have garrisons. They would have little regiments of soldiers at certain points along the road. And also there would be other fortified cities to the which the Israelites would pass. And so they, the Israelite slaves would not have any interaction between Egyptian soldiers instead of God leading them down the straight path, uh, the most common path. He led them in a somewhat circular path because as the scripture says, lest the children of Israel should see these Egyptian soldiers and in be engaged in some type of a war and become afraid and turn back around. So the direction that God is leading them in. Now, when we get into verse number two of chapter 14, God has determined to lead them in another direction. And this direction is actually going to put them in between Migdal and the Red Sea or Whenever you hear me say Red Sea, think Sea of Reeds. That's the proper name here. OK. And the reason why God is doing so is because as the, the Pharaoh is going to be told about what the Israelites are doing, he's going to be kept informed about their movement. He's going to come to this understanding that the Israelites, because they have now shifted direction, they are lost. And so God is going to work in Pharaoh's heart. Once again, see the teaching that I taught in Exodus chapter four about God's hardening Pharaoh's heart 
But God will harden Pharaoh's heart once again that he will come after the children of Israel, even though he has let them go, even though he let them go because God tore Egypt apart. Those 10 plagues destroyed Egypt. But nevertheless, Pharaoh will his heart will be hardened by God and he will come after the children of Israel. And the whole sense of coming after them is to come after them to re-enslave them again. And we'll talk about that as we move through the text. Also, as we move through the text, I'm hoping and, and I'm suspecting in this particular chapter, even though it is of some length, it won't take as long because it's very narrative. And I'm not gonna treat you like little bitty babies you can understand the story in a narrative way. Any spiritual points, of course, you know, I'll bring them out. Any particular points that we need to highlight, of course, again, I'll highlight them. But for the most part, just turn on the theater of your mind and see Israel moving and all of a sudden, by the word of God, begin to change direction towards the wilderness and the sea, looking like that they are confused and God working in Pharaoh's heart to move him against them, thinking that they are lost. And that's the idea. But anyway, and so uh, God says that he will have final judgment in verse number four against Pharaoh and all of his armies to the event, the express purpose of God is so that the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is the true God. And remember, we talked about that all the while in chapters uh, uh, seven through 12, the gods of Egypt who are no gods, idol gods, and through mighty hands of power, the plagues that God struck Egypt with, this was to bring them into the understanding that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the only God. Their so-called pantheon of gods, many gods, are no God at all. Okay, and so here's that point re-emphasized again. But not only is it for, for Egypt to know, but also for Israel to know in God's mighty working power, and we'll see that at the end of the chapter, that only Yahweh is truly God and he is a faithful God. And that you're going to see too, as we move to the end. And let me also add, this is the intent of God. Although it's not spoken in direct terms everywhere that God did these miraculous events because the nature, what God had done has spread all throughout the other nations, Gentile nations of the world, that they too may know that such a God who can work wonders, such wonders that have never been heard in all the world, that God is truly God. So encapsulate all of that into your thinking when God says, so that this or that person or that group will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so encapsulate that, that God is doing all of these things that the world may know there is only one true God, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of Israel. Okay, all right, verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. 
They said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. He took 600 select chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Okay, so now we have the report of what's going on with the children of Israel. Remember the shift in their direction. And so it was told Pharaoh what was going on, that they had shifted the direction. He thinking that they are lost in the wilderness. And so as the Israelites have been traveling, remember Moses had told him initially, let us go out a three days journey. So some days have passed by. And as Israel has come, come out, from Egypt and probably some days have, have, have passed, Pharaoh and his people began to consider what they have done in allowing Israel to go free. And they were basically saying what, what they were saying was, we have lost money in letting these slaves go free. So because these are slaves, their labor, great as it is, is free labor to us. Now we're going to have to pay Egyptians to do this work. So they were thinking that they had lost productivity because of all that free labor. And they had changed Pharaoh with his people, began to change their mind and regret ever having let Israel go, which is almost insane when you consider what God had done to the Egyptians. Remember, he tore the place apart. And as God struck them with the very last plague, the death of the firstborn, remember what they were saying to the Israelites? Just get out of here. Leave. Take whatever you want, but get out of here lest we're all dead men. How quickly, because of economics, people always work in consideration to their own self-interest. But because of economics, they change their mind and now they want to re-enslave the Israelites. So what does Pharaoh do? He responds to this by preparing his chariots as well as 600 chariots, that is 600 particular of his best chariots of the Egyptian armies, as well as set over the captains of hosts. They also too have chariots. So he prepares the best of his army to pursue after the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, another thing that you have to remember concerning uh, Egypt, and I just make this point Briefly, it is the chariots of Egypt that gave them their, their military prowess and strength and domination over the rest of the nation. That's one of the reasons why their military was more dominant than any other military in the world at this time because of their chariots. Now, the reason why I bring this particular point out is that you're going to see that once they enter into the Sea of Reeds, their chariots will be overcome with water and this will have an adverse effect on Egypt's military power. So therefore Egypt will be by this point of what's going to happen. I'll be, I'm a little ahead of myself, but I'm bringing out the issue of the chariots. But 
Egypt will lose their dominance and power as a military force because of the destruction of their best of their military as well as these great chariots that you see here. So that's what's important here. Okay. But nevertheless, so with a military arrangement with him, Pharaoh pursues the Israelites in the wilderness as they were leaving from the from out of Egypt. Verse nine. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them by camping by the sea beside Pahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay, let me deal with this section and I'm going to try not to become emotional and just teach and not do a whole lot of preaching. But this makes me hot as a six shooter. But let's go on. So now again, with the theater of your mind. Imagine Pharaoh with those 600 chariots and, and that's not even counting the men that are on foot that are most likely following him too, marching, marching after the children of Israel. And they already know the Egyptians have the greatest army in the world. And so as they are approaching Israel, they can see the Egyptians coming. And so panic comes upon the Israelites. They become frightened, not knowing exactly what the Egyptians will do. But when you see all of those chariots, you know, it's going to be some death that's involved in this thing. They might come to kill you rather than simply to enslave you. Okay. But they don't know. So what happens? They become very frightened. And the first we see two things, they begin to cry out to the Lord. This is the appropriate response when you are afraid, when you don't know what to do, when the enemy has come upon you like a flood, call unto the Lord your God, the God who has always been there. The God, see, think about it from Israel's perspective, the God who has protected you, the God who made a difference between you in the land of Goshen and the rest of Egypt. When he struck Egypt with blow after de debilitating blow, the God who did such great miracles in your eyes, call upon him for he is able to deliver you. He has already shown you 10 times he is a God of power and that there is no other God who can deliver like he can. So I understand things happen and I understand sometimes we become afraid, but remember who our God is that he is able and willing if it is according to his will to deliver. It's all right. 
fall into God's hand. Okay. And, and that's what Moses is going to tell them too, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do much preaching here. And so we got one group and that's the way I see this one who's faithful in remembrance, calling out to God for God's help. And then we have another particular group. And that's what it seems like. It doesn't seem like the people are flashing from one to another, although it possibly may be. But then here we have what? Another instance of them crying out to Moses. And now they are crying out to Moses completely different, but with complaint. Now let's look at the complaints. Look at what they said. Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out into the wilderness? In other words, weren't there enough space for graves where we could have just died while we were slaves in Egypt under the brutal treatment of the Egyptians as they treated us like dog slaves? Weren't there enough places of graves where we could have died there? But instead, Moses, look what you did. You brought us out here in the middle of nowhere. I guess but you brought us out here because there's enough space for graves. So now we can be buried out here in this wide open nothingness. Can't you see the nastiness that comes from them, the unappreciativeness and most of all the unbelief, the faithlessness. And you, you'll see that I don't want to get into it. I want to move through the text, but you will see this as we get into the book later on of Exodus and numbers, what they call the wilderness wandering. You will see this coming and going all the time of Israel's faithlessness of their murmuring, their complaining and their unbelief. No matter what God has done for them, they still do not believe. And it will be for this reason that God will kill this generation and allow them, cause them to die in the wilderness in the space of 40 years. And he will give the promised land to a new generation. But I ain't going to even get into that. Numbers chapter 14. But anyway, again, let's continue on telling to Moses, why have you done us this way to bring us out of Egypt? And I kind of want to say, you foolish people, don't you realize what they did to you in Egypt? If you don't realize that, tell your brother to turn around, move his shirt from his back and look at the Egyptians taskmaster's whip and the whips that are on his back. Don't you remember what they did to you in Egypt? And then you're saying to Moses, it is better that you had remained in Egypt. So notice they said, isn't this what we said to you from the first to leave us alone and let us stay in Egypt. And then lets you see that even when Moses initially came to deliver them from the Egyptians and no doubt, even during the plagues that were striking the land, you still had some people saying to Moses, Moses, just go on about your business. Let us stay as slaves in Egypt because we don't want to be fooling with you with all of this stuff. And so now they are throwing it back in Moses's faith. Didn't we tell you the first time, leave us alone. It's better to stay slaves in Egypt than to deal with this mess, especially now to be killed by Pharaoh and his army. And this is basically what we're saying to die in the wilderness. They're going to come out to kill us, Moses. And you know why they're going to kill us? It's all your fault. You should have left us in Egypt. 
you can understand Moses would probably get hot, but he was guided by the spirit and he counseled them calmly and succinctly in what to do. Let's see what Moses said. Verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by or stand still, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward and as for you, lift your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Okay. Let's look at the response of Moses and the continuing directions from God. So they came to Moses in these final complaints, wagging their fingers at Moses, saying, we told you to leave us alone. It would have been better to stay in, in Egypt instead of coming out here and be killed in the wilderness. Moses simply says to the people, shut your mouth. <laughs> He tells them, stand still, stand firm. And in that, Moses is telling the people, hold faith, keep your faith in God. Calm down, keep silent, trust the Lord for deliverance. And then he continues to say, for these Egyptians, these Pharaoh, his horsemen and his chariot that you are afraid of to the point of death, you will see them never again. He says, why? The Lord himself will fight for you. And I'm going to calm down, but this principle will be seen for Israel. Basically, it, it will be for the history of Israel especially as they are coming into the promised land. And remember those seven Canaanite nations, those seven Canaanite nations are stronger and more prepared for battle than the Jews were. So the Jews did not win and conquer the promised land because the Jews were militarily uh, uh, greater than these Canaanites. It was always because the Lord will fight their battle. So therefore, all they had to do was to put their faith in God and therefore God will fight their battle. And it kind of makes me want to preach a little bit. Maybe I got a preaching spirit on today, but I want to say to you too, you always remember the battle is the Lord's and he will fight for us. So you know what we are going to do? We are going to keep silent and stand still and see the salvation of God. God will deliver. Remember what the Hebrew boy said? 
when they were placed into the furnace of fire and they said, all right, you bow. If you do not bow, you, we're going to throw you into the fire. And how did they respond to Nebuchadnezzar? They said, this is our response. Hear me clearly, King Nebuchadnezzar. We will never bow unto you as if you are a God. But know this one thing, whether the Lord chooses to deliver us or not, we will not bow. But notice the point that they made, whether the Lord chooses to deliver or not. And this is the mindset for all of God's people. It may, God may not give me what I want. God may not work this thing out for me the way that I want it worked out. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm still going to trust in my God. I'm going to have faith in my God that my God will not do my will, but that his will be done. So I will still hurl firmly by my God. And that's basically the same thing that Moses was saying. But what Moses was saying to them was, you don't have to worry about these Egyptians because God is definitely going to do something to them in such a way you will never see them again. And so now God begins to direct, give further instructions to Moses. He says, you tell the people, continue to march Forward. Remember, they are facing the sea. Keep marching toward the waters. And he says, and as for you, Moses, I want you to split the sea. I like what he says right there. He just tells Moses as if it's something that he's going to do. Just lift your hand with that staff in your hand and divide the sea. <laughs> Just do it. Just divide the sea, Moses. It's like there's nothing for you to do. But nevertheless, this is the direction of God because God is going to accomplish something greatly. He says, so he's going to cause the sea to divide, allowing the children of Israel to march through on dry ground. And he's going to end with this great miracle. You have to understand it now. He Instead of Pharaoh and his armies getting afraid and saying, oh, I don't know if I want to go into that. I don't know if I want to follow them into that. God says what? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, harden his people's heart so that common sense is not going to work. They are going to even follow the children of Israel in their mad pursuit, even into the sea that God is going to split before the children of Israel anyway. And so he says, God will ultimately have his revenge, his vengeance, justice upon Pharaoh and all of the armies of the Pharaoh so that all of Egypt will know once again, that wonderful thing that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites is the only true God. When God does this miracle, verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Okay, so now what happens now? The, imagine the theater in your mind is still going. The armies of Pharaoh beginning to approach closer and closer. Remember what it talked about at the end of chapter 13 about that cloud that was leading the children of Israel. And now it lets us see that not only was it simply a cloud that was leading the children of Israel, but also there was an angel of God in the cloud. Now, whether this is the person, this is Jesus Christ. And we know this is a theophany. That's what we mean by a theophany. That is a manifestation of of God and the only Jesus was okay slowing it down whenever there's a manifestation a visible manifestation especially in the sense of a person like angel of the Lord okay it is always Jesus whenever there's a manifestation of God in this sense remember as we've told you before why no man has seen God the Father at any time. So therefore, if God is being seen or manifested, it is the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. Now, we don't know if this is Jesus here or not that's called the angel of God, or this is simply an angel. Nevertheless, it is the cloud that was leading them and an angel that is in the cloud. What does he do? He performs, he, he creates a protective barrier between the armies of Egypt and Israel. They are separated by this cloud. And, what, and, and when it comes time for camping time, when they settle down, if nobody's walking, sooner or later you, you walk, you stop walking. But nevertheless, as the Israelites camped, the cloud separated the Egyptians. See, it is protecting them, protecting them, not allowing the Egyptians to draw near to them. So it protected them with this impenetrable cloud. And what the cloud did at night, it turned the Egyptian side into absolute darkness. But for the Israelite side, it provided light to the Israelites. So we saw God in his once again, or should I say, continuing protection of his people. This is now being manifested by the cloud, that Shekinah glory cloud that we're seeing here. So what happens then? Moses, of course, he stretches out his hand according to the command that God had given him. And God causes an east wind to blow all through the night. And it not only separates the sea, but it causes a supernatural event to take place. Because here's what you got to remember. The sea, the walls of the water began to mount up. 
So it not only just simply separated, blew the water out until it just made it disperse somewhere further down beyond the normal banks. That's not what it seems to take place here. But this particular supernatural wind is not only splitting the sea, but it's causing the walls to mount. So imagine a wall of water. And as you're passing through, if you're on the edge, so, okay. Okay, so let me let me so let me calm down. This was not narrow. Remember, the children of Israel numbered upwards of two million, possibly even above that number. So about two million people. So the path that God had created in the Sea of Reeds was not some normal path. It was a great path. It was huge. So again. The power of that miracle and then to cause the seafloor, which was normally inundated with water. Of course, you would think it would be muddy. But what did God do again? He dried all of that area up. It is. It's amazing to consider that. And then what I was about to initially say, imagine if you were an Israelite marching through the path that God has created for you and you were near near not in the middle, but near the wall of water. And you looked at that wall, that water and saw that water just sitting there like a solid wall. And at the, I can imagine, you know what I would have done? I would have stuck my finger in it. I'd have stuck my finger in it. Imagine the amazement to find out it is still water. And the power of God is maintaining is just simply holding it, just holding it. Now, do you see why that is one of the greatest miracles of their deliverance? But anyway, so this is what happened. Wall, wall of water on the right hand and on the left hand as the children of Israel marched through in formation on dry ground. Verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up, took up the pursuit and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Let's look at that. So what happened? Remember what God said? He, he, uh, common sense is going to leave the Egyptians. When you see this water sitting up like this, in my mind, allow me to say, saints, only a fool would go in after them. You couldn't have convinced me. But when God begins to work in the heart, it has no other choice. God has hardened the hearts. The Egyptians are now pursuing and they've taken up their pursuit after the night in the morning and the cloud has lifted. And remember the cloud that separated Israel from the Egyptians. It is now lifted 
once again, leading the children of Israel as they themselves are passing through. There is still a space between the Egyptians and Israel. So Pharaoh tells them, all right, now let's start to pursue. Let's start to pursue. So he begins to pursue in the morning. So now the angel of God, God begins to look through that cloud of fire and he looks and sees Pharaoh's army in pursuit in the sea of reed as they are coming into the waters that have been divided. The war, they're still standing. Those waves are still standing as walls and Pharaoh's pursuing. So God begins to slow down his pursuit so he can't catch up with the tail end of the Israelites. You get it? The end, giving Israel a chance to completely pass through the sea of reed and come completely to the other side. Pharaoh has the chariots with horses. They can move at rapid pace. So what does God do? He slows them down. And we see in Psalm chapter seven, Psalm, Psalm number 77, what God did in order to slow them down. He caused a drastic rain to happen. He made lightnings and he caused the earthquake and he caused the wheels to get stuck because if it starts to rain, massive rain and lightning and the earth shaking, you can see the chariot wheels beginning to get stuck hard to travel and to swerve and fall off. So therefore he slowed down the pursuit of the Egyptians. So what happens as the Egypt, all of this is happening to the Egyptians, the men, the soldiers of the Egyptians begin to recognize this ain't no happenstance. This is being done by the God of the Hebrews. And they remember what the God of the Hebrews did to them with those 10 plagues in Egypt. So they begin to complain to the Pharaoh and begin to say, let us leave. This is not going to happen. This is not going to work out well for us. Why can't you see their God is fighting for them. They're fighting us against them. This is not just some stuff happening. This is their God working against us. But nevertheless, their mind, the mind of Pharaoh was set to pursue them and overtake them. Verse number 26. Let's move with the narrative. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to his normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel and Egyptians, I'm sorry, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptian, the people feared the Lord 
and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Okay, now what happened? The last time the armies of Pharaoh had begun to complain to him as these supernatural events were beginning to take place, the lightning, the rain, the waters, the earthquake, slowing them down while the children of Israel were still just going on dry ground, passing through. And, but nevertheless, Pharaoh insisted that they must continue. Therefore, they continued in their pursuit. So as they were pursuing in the chariots, God spoke to Moses, Raise your hand once again. And as Moses has lifted his hand to divide the sea, God commands Moses now lift your hands and command the sea to return back to their natural state. So Moses obeyed the commandment of God and that wall of water. Imagine this. Now, what you got to understand is this. The Egyptians and their chariots had gone into a place into the Sea of Reeds where it the waters had well covered their heads. So you got to see that part. This was no water at the knee, no water at the chest. It was well above their head. Imagine those high 10, 20, 25 feet water over your head like wall waters there. And the Egyptians are now in the very midst of that. And then Moses, as, as the very last of the Israelites, come to the shore on the other side. And Moses now lifts his hand with that staff in his hand and he commands the waters to return right back to where they were in the beginning. And imagine the wall of water collapse. Collapse. The, can you Im and remember that it's a huge space and it just comes. It doesn't give a You don't have a chance to escape. You cannot even escape. Why? You are in the very midst of the sea as the waters start coming in. And so what ends up happening? F Pharaoh and all his chariots, all of his men were killed, drowned in the sea, fulfilling the word of Moses. These Egyptians that you see this day, you will see them no more. And he, God killed every single one of them in the sea. What did it say? Not even one of them remained, which meant Pharaoh was killed too. And this is, for your information, Amenhotep II. And now, very quick, very quick point. Uh, they, I believe that in Egypt, they keep the sarcophagus of the pharaohs. But when it, when it comes to the sarcophag sarcophagus of Amenhotep II, this one is missing. Why? Because Amenhotep II's body was missing. His body was never found. It is found in the sea of reeds, probably at the bottom of the Sea of Reeds. Anyway, so Pharaoh himself, Amenhotep II, met his end in the Sea of Reeds, final judgment of God's hardening his heart. And so what happened? Then we get in verse number 29. It recounts what happened in the events. What happened? Israel walked through on dry land 
while those walls of water stood. But Pharaoh, when he and his armies attempted to do so, God brought the waters back over them and killed all of the Egyptians. And then it says, what happened? At the e end of the event, that is the waters, as the waters settled back and Israel on the other side got a chance to look over, they could see from a distance some of the bodies of the Egyptians that were drowned in the Sea of Reed. They could see some of the bodies begin to wash up on the seashore and they saw some of the dead bodies of the Egyptian soldier. This brought fear, appreciation, and acknowledgement in Israel. Again, what is the point of God's powerful hand? Notice the people, that is the Israelites, feared the Lord. God did these things not only so that Egypt would believe, but also so that his own people might believe. Believe what? That their God is God. And not only that, notice the idea of fear. He is a God to be feared. He is a God to be respected and obeyed. He is a God who can deliver. So you'll learn something too. That is the point of deliverance. That when things are going tough, God is able to deliver all type of object lessons they could learn from these things. And so the end result, they believed in the Lord and notice too, what God was also trying to accomplish in using Moses for the great things that he had done in Egypt. And even in the way that he spoke to Moses, when they came to the sea of Reed and God said to Moses, you split the Red Sea, you split it. So what? that they not only fear God and believe in God, but they also believe in Moses, that Moses is indeed a prophet of the Lord and has been sent by God. And Moses indeed speaks for God and Moses is God's choice. He is God's man of the hour, if you'll let me say it that way. Why am I emphasizing it? Because as we move further from these events again into the so-called wilderness wandering, it will be Moses that they will continually challenge Moses that they will continually doubt. And this very same Moses that they're going to try to kill. Amazing how we quickly forget. Even if I had to lead you guys who are listening to me right now, I would lead you in prayer. Lord, help me to remember the things that you have done in my lifetime. Because if I remember them as I should remember them, then I will continue to live as I should live and not have emotional highs. Notice what I said, emotional high. That means the thing that's happening at the moment, I feel good. I get energized. My emotions are moved at that time. But later on in life, a little bit up the road, I begin to be contrary. I begin to act in unbelief. I begin to question God. I don't need, we don't need emotional highs. We need firm trust in God. What did Moses say again? Stand still, hold your peace, and see the salvation of God.
All right, guys, enough of that. I love chapter 14, but join me next time as the children of Israel, as well as Moses, that is even being led by Moses, consider this last great act on the Egyptians, the Red Sea, drowning in the Red Sea, as they consider these events and begin to worship the Lord in song. All right, guys, thanks for joining me on that one. See you next time.